and welcome back to Immigrantly. I'm your host Sadia Khan and I am so excited to be joined by our guest co-host for the season, Shah Jahan Khan. Hi Shah Jahan. Hello everybody. Hi Sadia. How's it going? It's going well. The year has started, you know. It's uh, I guess it's going yeah. as well as possible. We were hoping to do this in person. But clearly, uh, Omicron had other plans, so we're doing our best. I'm in Boston, you're in New York. Uh, I believe you're weathering a, a snowstorm or ice storm or something. and <laughs> So that's kind of how it's going. It's crazy, yeah. right? So how has 2022 treated you so far? Well, today actually is a very special day, uh, January 5th, because, um, you know, this is obviously our season uh, 13 is all about love. Um, and before we get into the actual interview, uh, today happens to be me and my partner's uh, four-year wedding anniversary. Oh, wonderful. Uh, and it also happens to be my 11-year uh, sobriety anniversary. So a lot of listeners, some may not know, but I'm in long-term recovery from um, addiction and alcoholism and stuff. And on top of that, it is also my parents' 43rd wedding anniversary. Wow, so 43 all of these years? things, Yeah. <laughs> All of these things are happening at the same time on this day. So in that in that respect, I think, you know, it's a sign of hopefully good things to come. And it's a, I think it's a really fun way to, to kick off this first episode. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And last time you and I spoke, Shah Jahan, we talked about love, um, our own experiences with it. And the conversation itself was quite unfiltered and impromptu. And we were able to talk about a few different topics within the broader space of love, right? Yeah. And that's kind of one of the things that's exciting me about this upcoming season is hearing, you know, your perspective as like a first generation Pakistani, mine as a second gen Pakistani and kind of how we're going to maybe play off of that and how how we'll sort of relate to each other and maybe have different experiences with the same uh, same guests that we talk about. And I'm really looking forward to like learning a lot more about you also. I'm excited too. And full disclosure, I am scared. I can talk about anything, but when it comes to love, mm. it's hard. It it's is. Hard. It is. Absolutely. And that's why we have a guest who can help us navigate this space a little better. Before we start our introduction um, and before we introduce our guest, I want to take care of a few housekeeping items. If I so as some of our listeners may know, we have a Patreon. You can basically subscribe to it for as low as $5 a month. Yes, one Starbucks coffee. You can contribute to creating this amazing content by foregoing one cup a month. Not bad, right? And if you want to leave us a review or subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, that would be awesome because that's how we grow. And now to today's episode, Chajahan, do you want to introduce the guest? So our first guest, her name is Aparna Nancherla. She is just a fantastic, kind of one of these people that has done everything. A lot of people know her from her stand-up comedy. He was just like, you know, I should tell you this. I actually only friended you on Facebook because you're an Indian comedian. He was Indian as well. And I was like, okay. And he was like, yeah, I just wanted to support an Indian artist. I didn't actually think you were that funny. I was just like, why? Why are you, why are you, why are you saying this out loud to me? I feel like there's so many other people you could say this to. There's an internet specifically for these types of grievances. She's been on Comedy Central. She's got an album out there. She has a new special on Netflix. She also has an incredible like voiceover career doing all sorts of stuff like BoJack Horseman. She's appeared in, in shows like uh, Corporate. Uh, and she's just kind of one of these people in entertainment. She's very exciting in this new sort of wave of, you know, brown people in the entertainment world. And I think it's it's great to have her as our first guest because she has been very open about lots of stuff like anxiety, uh, depression, but also just kind of her experience dating uh, right. was, you know, a huge part of her and I think remains uh, a part of her comedy. 
Uh, so I, I think she's like a really, really fantastic guest to kick this whole thing off. So I'm really excited to talk to her. So should we start then? Yeah, let's go for it. Aparna, one of my uh, favorite jokes that you ever did uh, was, it's kind of like, I feel like it tackles a bunch of different stuff in this like one thing. It's about when the, the Indian dude hits you up on a on an app and basically is like, and I'm going to obviously do a terrible job of this because you're the comedian and I'm not the comedian. <laughs> well, but, I haven't so, told that joke in so long. So I'm like, I would also love a refresher. So it's basically, you're, I forget which app you said you were on, but it's basically this guy's like, hey, so like, I'm Indian, you know, we should date. And the line that you have, uh, the reply, or your punchline rather, is essentially like, thank you for being like a poet of census information. <laughs> and I, and for me, like it spoke to me on a, on a few different levels as far as like, obviously we're going to maybe talk about our hopefully our relationship with like brownness and community and that kind of thing. And and I guess it kind of, it's a good springboard for maybe where we wanted to start with you was just like yeah. this like dating thing, you know, cause it's also a big part of at least your earlier stand-up routine. And like, I think the stuff that we're interested on this show in particular is kind of this community element, whatever that means to you, whether that's like the South Asian-ness, the brownness, in terms of dating within your community, was that like a thing for you? Was it even like a factor growing up? Um, yeah, well, growing up, I think I had what is probably not, you know, that strange for a South Asian kid, which is that my parents were pretty protective and like, uh, you know, conservative about what they wanted my sibling and I to be able to do. So there was a lot of, you know, no sleepovers, no co-ed parties, no dating. And my sibling who's two years older than me was really, I think in the long storied line of older sibling behavior was the one kind of breaking all the new ground and fighting all the battles. Um, and they were also just more, I think, rebellious in general. So they, you know, were the one to be like, I'm gonna talk on the phone as long as I want and I'm gonna, <laughs> you know, date a white guy and yeah I'm just gonna be the pioneer on all fronts and I I guess following um something I think younger siblings sometimes fall into was kind of seeing their plan of action taking notes seeing what worked and what didn't and then being like I'm gonna approach this a different way because this one seems to create a lot of friction so I was very <laughs> I was very much under the radar and and more like maybe I'll wait to to you know do these things until college because it seems like otherwise it just causes a lot of tension. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I can totally relate to that. So I was the eldest of of three Pakistani yeah. kids with two younger sisters and you know just I've 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 had a lot of in-depth conversations with them about it and about the different kind of privileges as like a man as a South Asian man uh in terms of you know when it was the things I could get away with, you know, sneaking yes. off to school dances and proms and shit like that versus the things that they could. And then, you know, later when I got married and stuff too. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder if there is sometimes a gendered element to it. Cause I grew up in, you know, my sibling is now non-binary, but growing up, they also were, you know, a sister. And I think being two girls, I think we, always felt we were given a shorter leash than if we had hmm. been sons but i don't know if that's necessarily accurate we didn't have like a brother to to compare notes with but i do think we figured that like at least in like an indian household like daughters are always kind of treated a little differently not quite as coddled and like maybe over protected even more than like a boy would be you know, this is so fascinating listening to both of you talk about this stuff because I am that parent. I am an immigrant. <laughs> I came from Pakistan and I have two daughters. I'm very protective of them as well. But in terms of dating, and Shah Jahan and I talked about this on our last episode, uh, I am not as strict as probably your parents would have been, and that could be mm -hmm. generational. I know a lot of second-gen kids are somehow reluctant 
do date bases. You know, there is this either intentional reticence or subconscious. And I'm curious whether it has anything to do with the fact that um, Desi community can be judgmental at times, right? You know, sometimes people are just scared of that judgment and that's why they don't want to date within their own communities. I have friends who have older kids and they don't want to date because they're like, you know, we'll be judged, especially women. Judged in terms of who they select as a partner or just that being known more widely? Known more widely or how they date. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's interesting because I did come to it later. I, I like my sibling was older and then even like family friends, like I, I kind of observed them saying like how they all had, you know, boyfriends and girlfriends, but they just kept it a secret from their parents. And it was just very much something that was done clandestinely. But I, I don't think I consciously was like, I'm not going to date another thisy, but I do think I tended towards, you know, non-thisies and I didn't start interrogating that in myself until much later. But I do think there was an element of like, I want to get as far away from this like community based judgment as possible or just like, I don't want the these tropes of like, you know, a patriarchy coming into my relationship of like, even even if you are, you know, raised here as, as like a South Asian man, like you still are maybe more coddled or just like treated in a way where I was like, I don't want to be having to compete with your mother. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Chajahan, do you think you were raised differently? I mean, yes, I was 100%. You could have to talk to my sisters, Mari Manur Jahan, about how coddled I was for sure. Um, but I really related to what you said, Aparna, about um, not interrogating it for a little while, you know, and not maybe I think for myself. Uh, I had another element of it. So being uh, a person in long-term recovery, I've been sober now for actually 11 years today. Uh, and I... But so there was a, some other mental health stuff going on too, you know, kind of on top of all the shit. All the shit is happening at the same time. <laughs> but yeah. I think, I think, and one thing I was curious about was uh, I heard you, so you grew up in the suburbs of DC. Another thing that you said once was that you pretend to say that you're from DC because it makes you sound cooler. I often pretend <laughs> to, I mean, I'm technically from a suburb of Boston. I don't know how cool it is to say you're from Boston in like the entertainment world, but right. I do the same thing there. But I was curious as far as your, what did your suburb kind of look like? Mine, so mine was very white. I was mm -hmm. the brownest thing basically in my class <laughs> you know and it's changed a lot since then but at the time it was basically just you know we were i think the only pakistani family there were maybe two other indian families in the town at the time yeah it's interesting Our, i definitely like northern virginia very white but also i would say fairly diverse in that maybe because it's dc adjacent or there's just a mm. lot of immigrant communities there so i did feel like growing up I wasn't in a sea of whiteness necessarily. Like there were definitely a lot of people from other countries. Like I remember in kindergarten, it, it did feel like a little bit United Colors of Benetton where there was like a kid from Turkey, a kid from Nepal. Like there, it was yeah. just, I, I think a more worldly place than a lot of suburbs are. But at the same time, it was still white dominant and sort of like tropes of whiteness were sort of what everyone was aspiring to or you were just kind of existing in your own community that was like adjunct to whiteness mm. was it at all like so i had sort of the two community thing so like on the weekends there was like yeah. the masjid and like that was kind of the desi crew and and you know obviously there were a lot of kids like my age but keeping that partition was sort of a big thing for me personally yeah I mean, that that was pretty much exactly my experience as well, where my parents were very interested in being part of like the South Asian immigrant community. And we definitely had that. I mean, that would I would say that was more of my social life was going to events like that than like hanging out with my friends from school. But then at school, it did feel like I was very much entrenched in like this western upbringing and community and I didn't like mixing the two like I remember in high school I 
think my sibling and I did like a classical Indian dance performance at like, there was like a Lunar New Year celebration. And I remember like being excited about it, but also being like really nervous to like bring that into that part of my life. Yeah, yeah. My mom was the one who would come into school and like tell kids about Eid and be like, hey, so (laughs) we're Muslim. Also, this is why he's not eating right now (laughs) because it's Ramadan. She was also like like the fluoride person. Oh, the fluoride? Like, yeah, she would come in and do the fluoride. And I actually had forgotten about that until I was interviewing some friends for another show. And they were like, you remember your mom was the one who would do fluoride with us in sixth grade? I was like, oh my God, I totally forgot about that. Whoa, I don't even think that was a thing at my school that someone came in and did fluoride. Yeah, (laughs) it was, it was Tina Auntie, man. She did the fluoride (laughs) with us. That's funny. My mom also came in and like did a, I think in fourth grade, she came in and gave my class like a presentation on India. And I remember she like made like a, like samosa, like snack. And I was so scared that people would be like, what is this? This is gross. But then it was like, okay. Like everyone was like, this is good. And I was like, oh, thank thank God. (laughs) My reputation is safe. So does it ever change, like in teenage years, how you approach your identities, um, being second-gen kids here, and then as you go into your 20s and 30s, what is the transition like? Yeah, that's interesting because I also went to a pretty white college. Like I went to Amherst, which is like a small liberal arts school in New England, but it's a lot of, I mean, it's diverse in the way that I think small colleges are where it's like we'll do enough to make our brochure look (laughs) not (laughs) not like ivory but yeah there were just a lot of there a lot of white kids a lot of generational wealth like I I listened to the interview you guys did with Hari and I think it was a similar type of school that he went to which was just yeah a lot of New England I think old money and I think that also informed just my even my sense of like how I was perceived by others because in a way I did feel invisible on that campus in terms of like Mm. tropes of attractiveness or like I just felt like I couldn't measure up in the same way as like a white a certain type of white Mm. woman Mm. Um, which I think didn't inhibit me from like seeking out relationships and like connection but I think it was always kind of in the forefront of my mind like I will never be that ideal that is like prized in this specific environment. And I think because it was a small school, it just felt like that became like your whole bubble, at least for those four years. It's I actually, I completely forgot that you went to, I dropped out of UMass Amherst because I did too many drugs. (laughs) And for me, it was, it was starting a a band with other Brown kids that kind of helped, helped, help ease whatever that transition was into like, oh, there's other sort of whatever fringe weirdo brown brown kids like myself. So Yeah, and it's interesting because my first year of college, like I lived in a all-female dorm and I would say it was mostly non-white women. It was like mostly East Asian, Black, I think also South Asian, but some of them, like one of them was from Bangladesh. Like she was, you know, had come from there and... So I think in that sense, all my friends weren't white, but then it was like everyone around us Hmm. was. Hmm. Yeah. So Aparna, let's talk about your dating now. Um, Currently, as a comedian, in the context of internet dating, um, what is it like to be dating as a comedian? Are there expectations that people have from you? Are you annoyed by them? I think it's funny because I think the last, time I was online and like had a dating profile I had achieved like a moderate amount of career success so it did feel like maybe every few people that I would like chat with online would would know of my work or be familiar with it but I almost felt that was a bad thing like if they knew of me as a comedian already I was sort of like well now you have an idea of me and we can't like start on equal footing. So that almost felt like a deal breaker. Like it was that they had to kind of not know who I was and that made me more comfortable. Um, But I don't think, I mean, I'm trying to think if I had any uh, preconceived ideas around 
identity? I don't think so. I mean, I think I've always been sort of open to dating. Like I, I have dated people from all across the identity pool, but I think I do tend, like my longest term relationships have all been with white men. And I think that is something that on one hand has, I've been like, well, they're the majority. Like it's, <laughs> it's not, it's not hard to find one, but on the other hand, I am like, is that, is there something more there that I'm not investigating? Hmm. Like, is this my comfort zone to, to kind of stick to this group? Or am I somehow thinking they are more evolved on some level or like still idealizing them in a way that I did when I was like 12 or something? Do you think white men are more patronizing towards people of color? Oddly, and I think I would hope that all of us are perceived this way, but I think especially white men are given this um, pass a lot of times, but like it really is a case by case basis. Like it depends on like I have always tended, obviously, towards like liberal, progressive white men, but it's also dependent on like their own lived experience of how exposed they were to mm -hmm. kind of other lifestyles and like how many friends they had who weren't white growing up. So I think that also plays a big factor into their openness and like willing to have those conversations. Because I remember dating a white guy who was like from the Midwest and he was like very, you know, nice and like, um, chivalrous and and very like we had the same silly sense of humor but then I remember we got in an argument about like homosexuality or something and it, it wasn't that he was homophobic but there were just like undertones of things he said where I was like well why why would you think that's funny and and it it did feel like this gap in understanding that I couldn't quite bridge with him and I think that was like eye-opening in a way where I was like, oh my gosh, there really are people in New York who still are like at this <laughs> stage of their, of their understanding of the world. And I kind of just always assume everyone's at a different stage. Do you think, uh, is it at all important for, and I, I'm not sure of your relationship status now, but uh, is it important for a partner of yours to like be also in quote unquote entertainment, whatever that means, or like do they, does that even matter to you or like, or do they have to like give a shit or do you prefer that? Like, so my wife, I'll just tell you, is a neuroscientist. She actually, <laughs> that, I think has a better taste in music than I do. I'm also with a, I ended up with a white person who like gets it is the way that I used yeah, to put yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> but you know what I mean? I, that's, I just was kind of curious about, about that. Yeah. I mean, I think in entertainment, it's funny in comedy specifically, I think um, for women in particular, like if you can get in a relationship with a non-comedian, people are like more excited for you. They're like, oh, you, you found one, <laughs> like you found one who is okay with it. Cause I think sometimes, especially with female comedians, straight men don't want a woman who's funnier than them or, hmm. you know, challenges them in that way. I, I don't want to speak for everyone cause that's changing, but I do think there are a lot of men who like that's not what they're seeking out in a partner. They like, I think there's some common phrase where it's like men want a woman who will laugh at their jokes and women want a man who won't kill them. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's, oh, a very different it's a very, set of, <laughs> very different set of priorities. Oh, yeah. I think women comedians have actually have a harder time sometimes finding a partner who is into them who's not also a comedian so like can it automatically relate to them on that level of just like hmm. enjoying seeing the world in a certain respect so I, my partner now we've been together for i think we just passed five years this summer oh, nice. um he is yeah thank you he is um he's jewish and he is not a comedian he's in book publishing so everyone's okay. always like you got one <laughs> <laughs> If you have a business, you need a website. What's the best way to get a website up and running? Well, choose a website hosting company that makes it simple, like Pair Networks. Pair has over 20 years of experience managing the entire digital ecosystem for thousands of online businesses all around the world. 
Beer makes it easy for you with do-it-yourself website building tools and features including simple drag and drop page design. And they have guaranteed US-based support technicians ready to help you whenever you need it. 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Right now, when you sign up with Pair Networks, you'll receive one free month of web hosting. See for yourself how easy it is to build your website for free. Visit pair.com slash free to get your first month of website hosting for free by using the code QUICKSTART. That's pair.com slash free promo code quick start to get started today. This podcast is sponsored by Better Health. As you probably already know by now, we talk a lot about mental health on this podcast and the importance of taking the time to take care of yourself. In fact, we dedicated an entire season to it. And there are so many different ways to do that, whether it's meditation or getting a massage. But let's be honest, ice cream can only go so far and sometimes what you really need is to connect with someone. I've been open about the fact that therapy has helped me a lot when it comes to managing my mental health. If you've been struggling with stress, anxiety, or if you just want to learn effective preventative tools, BetterHelp might be for you. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's convenient, affordable, and you can start with your therapist in under 48 hours of signing up. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about and take the leap. Again, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Immigrantly listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash listener. I want to expand this conversation, Aparna, and I want to link it to something that you talk a lot about. You've talked about it on numerous occasions is your anxiety. And I am so glad that you do and you did because I have always been anxious. I've suffered from anxiety, but growing up in Pakistan, um, I didn't know how to describe it. So what I would do is that I found this coping mechanism where... I relied more on praying. Um, I felt if I prayed, I would be safer somehow. Now in the US, not only do I pray, but I also have a therapist, um, which works out perfectly. But sometimes I feel like my spouse, we've been together for eternity, doesn't understand it as much because I don't think he can articulate what it means to be anxious all the time. How has that impacted your relationship and how did that affect your dating? Yeah, I mean, I do remember um, there was one guy I dated where I feel like my anxiety came up in a certain respect and he kind of dismissed it. And I immediately was like, never contact me again. Like I was so I had such a hard line about it. I, I was like surprised myself by my reaction. But I think. I have like made it such an open conversation for myself that now I think to put any of it back in the box or like try to repress just that openness about accepting it is just feels like something I can't do. Um, But I do think like in my current relationship, we both have experiences with certain kinds of anxiety. Mm -hmm. The, I, I guess the freeing, but also frustrating thing about anxiety is everyone is so individual like it can manifest with so many different triggers and like yeah how it presents is different so even though we both have it like ours are so different that it's like we still have to kind of have those conversations to understand each other better but I think just the fact that he also has that sort of brain is is helpful Hmm. Hmm. but then it's also like well, it helps if like one person is not having an anxious day when the other person is, because <laughs> yeah. otherwise 
when both people are, it's just like, okay, nobody is driving the car. Yeah, that's really interesting. My wife and I are fortunate to now kind of, and I think that something you spoke to makes a lot of sense where, you know, so like I mentioned, I, you know, I'm in recovery and this kind of stuff, but that doesn't mean that I only would date somebody that's sober, but it is important to me to be with someone who has been through some shit whatever that means and so they understand and so we understand each other in that way and that we can support each other and it's cool to finally so she just finished her phd this past year um so you know i knew her as like a a student and stuff and i was also i went back to school a little while ago but then we're finally basically both at a place where things are like good in life for the first maybe not not like i don't but you know what i mean so that really makes a lot of sense to me yeah and and now that you mentioned anxiety. I'm thinking back and I do think some of my initial like attraction, especially in college to a certain type of white guy, which was like a jock and kind of a very, um, like, I just want my beer and like my game and, and I'm good. Like, I think there was like a simplicity to that and like an uncomplicated view of the world without all this like hardship and trauma that made me like, I want that. Like, I just want a piece of that. And, (laughs) and then I would always find like, when I got to know those guys better, like there was just a lot of times not to generalize them all, but um, would love to return the favor. So I would say um, there wasn't a lot under the surface. Like it just felt like (laughs) they didn't have a curiosity of like unpacking any bigger world around them. And that was like really, disappointing to me and ultimately like not interesting Hmm. Hmm. yeah yeah because for me I know I can manage my anxiety but it seems like that worst case scenario is is dwelling in my brain it's there it's made home right you want a companion who understands and it's interesting I while I I have experience with depression I don't necessarily with anxiety in the same way. And that's something I've had to learn from my partner is because she has mm. uh, social anxiety. So yeah. that's something that over the years I've had to kind of understand that like, hey, yeah, some, and you know, she says it too, that like, you know, sometimes like when you want to go do stuff, like I'll say I don't want to. And sometimes like once we get there, it's cool and it's like fine. But other times like it's okay. Like I don't, I just, you know, you don't have to like freak out. about. And that's something that I've had to learn and just to speak to like, yeah, there's not just this, even this topic of like mental health within relationships is so, like you said, it's so individual and, you know. Yeah. And I think also just being a people pleaser and like an accommodator. And I think part of that was also comes from my family dynamic of kind of seeing what causes more friction and always going the way of making more people happy or keeping the peace. I think even in relationships, like I've had to kind of give myself room for the way my mental illness might take up space. And that's been hard a lot of the time, just in, you know, when you are depressed or anxious, you're not really necessarily fun to be around or you're asking Mm -hmm. things that can be frustrating or irritating of other people. So I think that is also has been a challenge for me where you might have to like rely more on this other person than you might otherwise and I think as an immigrant a lot of times you're really into the idea of self-reliance or just like not making trouble for the rest of the group so I think that has also been like something I've had to work on. I want to talk a little bit about the immigrant identity and how that ties into mental health. Uh, I guess for me the idea of mental health was mostly considered as a western construct so it's like having anxiety or depression is a western thing that people in developed nations or first world problems and i can in a very twisted warped fashion understand why people in pakistan would think that because people are struggling to get basic needs met right so they don't have time to talk about other things and talking about anxiety is a privilege in my mind. And that was something that I had to struggle with initially as well. Like, is this a Western construct? Now that I live in the US, do I have the same problems that everybody living in US has? Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I also 
like I came to name my anxiety and depression, I think when I was like 19 or just in my early 20s. And I think I, when, when I was able to name it, I sort of learned that in my family, it had been a common experience, like within my mom and my sibling, like they had their own experiences with anxiety and depression. And I think that helped open up the conversation within our family about it. And I think my mom had dealt with it for a long time, like even since she had first immigrated or emigrated here to America. So I think that really opened my mind as to like, oh, this is something she's been dealing with for so long. Like it's not just something that happened to her when she came here. So I think it made it more normalized in the sense of like, oh, this is like in our bloodline (laughs) for for lack of a better way of putting it. Like this is just my inheritance. Like I don't have to think there's something wrong with me or like think this is something that comes from privilege or um, yeah, like a byproduct of circumstance, but just rather how our brains work. And I do think there's a lot of, especially among South Asian women, just like a mental illness that just isn't discussed because a lot of times South Asian women just aren't given the same license to take up space in relationships or like account for their own needs before everyone else's. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that just, that, that makes me think of um, when I, you know, I think a few years after uh, we sort of, it became clear within my family that I had substance uh, issues and stuff and depression stuff. And I started talking about it more openly. It was like, Oh yeah. Whatever happened to that uncle who nobody talks to anymore, you know what I mean? And then realizing that like, Oh wait, maybe I'm not the only like weirdo. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So yeah. Yeah. It's kind of funny to me. And like, at least with my extended family, like how, South Asians are really good at keeping certain parts of like everyone's personal lives, like way in the dark, but then other things of like, you've gained weight or like, yeah, who are you marrying? Exactly. They're like always common, <laughs> commonly known and discussed. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. Aparna, I want to pivot a little and talk about your comedy. So mm-hmm. Shah Jahan and I have been watching your stand-up comedy like for the last, I don't know how many days. <laughs> I have for years. Yeah, I have recently started watching it and it's so good. It's at times self-deprecating, but then it doesn't overwhelm you with that. But what I've seen with some comedians, um, South Asian comedians, let's take Russell Peters, most of their comedy is self-deprecating in a way where it is making audience laugh at the expense of yourself or the community, your perceived community, right? As an immigrant, I sometimes find it offensive. How many jokes can you hear about your parents' accents or what they eat or certain behavior that they have? What are your thoughts on that? And how do you approach comedy? What do you draw your inspiration from? Yeah, I think, well... When I started comedy, I think I came to it with not a lot of, like some people when they become stand-ups or they try it, they just have seen a lot of stand-up, they've taken in a lot of comedy, they're like, that's what I want to do. I didn't have as big a base of experience, like I had seen a couple things and I just knew it was something that interested me. And uh, I was also a really shy kid. And my mom had made me take a public speaking class. And and I realized there that it was easier for me to kind of talk to a big group with some preparation than to be in a one-on-one conversation with a stranger. Like I found one just had more of a degree of control. So I think that and making people laugh felt like then it even gave you more control. So I think that was what kind of drew me to comedy in the first place in terms of Uh, even though it seemed like not something a shy kid would be into, I think it was just having that sort of preparation and being able to be in control a little bit. But I do think I still never was like, oh, I think my family's really funny. Or like, I think I feel kind of weird, like a fish out of water. Like that wasn't really my experience of the world. Like I think 
as a shy person, I just always was in my head most of the time that I think most of my sense of humor came more from just like my odd observations on like being alive in the world. So I think that's where I first started writing from. So when other people then commented, I like how you don't talk about your identity a lot, or like you don't rely so much on that. It kind of struck me as odd because that didn't even occur to me to write about because yeah, I didn't think of it as weird or funny. I was like, that just is another thing that's true about me, but I don't think of it as like a joke. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And I think at least the pieces that I've watched, we can see your identity shine through. It's not that you're mm-hmm. not, you don't have to necessarily articulate it um, but we we can see that happening. It's sometimes people who are just in a way demeaning their identity. I guess that's what bothers me more. Yeah, and I I sometimes I wonder if that is a facet of them. Like I I don't know if this is true, but sometimes I wonder if like that's the role they played growing up, where they were kind of like the class clown, or they found a way to use their identity in their favor where they would kind of make a joke at their expense before anyone else could. Mm. But I think because I was kind of more shy and withdrawn, I never like felt like I had to justify myself in that way. Like I was more kind of on the side taking notes and like seeing how other people were, were, you know, weaponizing or, or not their identity. And so I think I, I never felt like that was something I could take ownership of in that way of like, yeah, I guess part of me felt like I didn't have the, like it feels like to make fun of your identity in a way you have to be able to really stand firm in it. Because I think to make, I guess to make fun of anything, you have to be like, this is who I am and now I'm going to subvert it. Whereas I felt like sometimes with my South Asian identity, I didn't feel like I had enough ownership over it to then be like here's what's weird about you guys like almost the way like an outsider wouldn't feel like they had room to make fun of a certain group I think I just didn't feel like I belonged in enough to be like point out what was weird no that's hmm. interesting yeah I think I for me I, I was probably on the other side for the first 19 or so, or maybe up until the age of 21, I think. And that's when I, I felt a conscious shift to be like, you know, I don't want to be that, the joke anymore. Cause yeah, in my, my friend group was pretty white, you know, even my first kind of recovery circles were very white and stuff. And so I, and it, yeah, it wasn't, it, it was such an integral part of, of being used to being the the one in the Benetton ad that looks this way, except if the Benetton ad is all white people plus you, but (laughs) so, and now, but yeah, I I also kind of gravitate towards comedians like yourself or like Hari, you know, um, because I can, I can, I I feel like now I sort of (laughs) am trying to undo the damage and it's like a lifelong process. You know what I mean? Yeah, but now that I think about it, I think one of the first comedy things I did, I I was in a South Asian community speech competition. And I remember it was like, what is one element about that's facing like South Asian youth today that you would want to change or work on or something? And everyone, I think a lot of people actually went for Apu from The Simpsons where they were like, I want to like, you know, have better representation in the media and just feel like there's a more vital demonstration of our culture and and background that's out there and I think I went completely the opposite way and I did like a takedown of Bollywood movies and how like I (laughs) I just felt like they should they should be like more concerned about making each one good rather than making as many as possible and I just like made fun of all the tropes so in that sense I guess I did start out with identity-based humor and I remember it went over really well but I think there is still a part of me that was sort of like, is this right? Like, I, like even yeah. though it was comedic, I did feel like, am I the one who's allowed to make fun of this? Yeah. That yeah. actually leads into the next question I wanted to ask you was related to just kind of this, you know, wherever we're at right now and now 2022 versus where we were, you know, in 2012, um, 
in terms of like when you started down this path, in terms of what the industry looked like at the time, what does it look like now? How do you feel be, having been in writers' rooms and stuff? What sort of changes have you seen, you know, in your time that you've been doing this? Yeah, I mean, I think I don't know. I I don't know if you guys feel this way, but I do feel like every year now feels like five or seven yeah. years at the yeah. rate of like <laughs> evolution. But yeah. so it almost feels like. I don't know, like a decade or like a century ago in some respects. But um, yeah, I think getting to work on uh, my first writing job was uh, totally biased with W. Kamau Bell. And that did feel like a groundbreaking show in many respects uh, of just having like a progressive Black host and just having a really diverse writer's room. But even within that, bringing on so many voices that maybe you hadn't seen on television before, like you know, like a trans uh, commentator and like, and people having an argument about like internet trolls. Like, I just think it was doing a lot of things that for its time, people weren't like the conversation wasn't even necessarily there yet. And Mm -hmm. since then, I think it's opened the doors for, you know, uh, shows like Hudson's show and, um, you know, even I would say like a show like Insecure and I just think that there have been so many positive steps media and representation wise since then. And yet uh, at the same time, I think we still behind the scenes are fighting some of the same battles in terms of getting things made that aren't just like odes to identity or like justifying Mm -hmm. why our stories are interesting. We don't get to be just um, people first, it's still <laughs> yeah. like, what are we seeing about you that makes you, uh, just like the rest of us. And you're like, who's the rest of us? <laughs> Is it still white people? I think you mean it's still white people. <laughs> That's why I'm a big fan of Insecure. And when that show first came out, I was like, oh man, this is kind of the future here. Yeah. And just like, I think creators and writers of color, just making their own yeah, like Issa Rae having her own production company and being able to like yeah. funnel through all these other creatives of color rather than relying on a bunch of old white men being like, okay, I guess we'll ha- we can have room for one more of your shows. <laughs> yeah, I-, I made this joke on our last uh, show. I think we're probably the last thing we're going to ask you is about any advice that you have. But I was thinking about, <laughs> I was in uh, Brooklyn about a month ago and behind me on the three the digital screen was a Muslim dating app, like a oh wow Minder, like an ad for a Muslim oh, dating Minder. app. And I was like, never in my life did I. I mean, it's it doesn't have the greatest name. It sort of sounds like a possible racial racial slur, Muslim. <laughs> yeah. But oh, I was like, never did I think in my life that I would be in whatever you know. I forget which station I was at, but that that I would see this behind me. So something something's happening. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And I think just even in seeing like some of the young standups coming up, like they just seem so much more evolved in a way on, on identity mm-hmm. and um, the conversations they're willing to have and the topics they bring to stage. Like I just see so many more women talking about mental health and um, even sexuality and, and just uh, like anti-capitalism. And I think, that wasn't there when I started and I, and I'm grateful for that, but I am curious, like what, what it will look like five years from now. Cause mm-hmm. everyone's like, there's going to be a backlash. And I'm like, yeah, but I think the, the marker of progress has been shifted forward enough that I don't think we're going to end up quite back where we were. Yeah. I, yeah. there was one other thing I just wanted to ask real quick. You mentioned other comics. Do you find a lot of like emotional support from your other comic friends in that community? Is it, is it, have you found your place in it, you know, the way to sort of like nurture each other and, and, you know, especially, you know, whether it's in the context of dating or or really anything. Yeah. I mean, I would say a lot of my close friends are other comedians and I think maybe we just all have a similar kind of brain and way of processing the world. So it is natural to find support in them like emotionally and career wise, but I do sometimes find myself a little bit jealous of the younger generation because I do feel like they are so much more diverse in so many respects and it's not even a question that they all deserve room and they all deserve 
a chance to kind of make their dent in the industry. And not that that wasn't there at all when I started, but I think I have fewer friends that are like non-straight white people that I I wish I had had more exposure to that earlier because I think it would have maybe shaped my path a little differently. It's interesting you say that because I have two teenage girls and I find them, at least as as a mother, I see them being so comfortable in who they are Mm -hmm. and whatever aspect of their identity. And yes, they talk about anti-capitalism all the time, um, especially with my husband who is a management consultant. So it does get (laughs) a bit rough, Uh, (laughs) but I love it. I just... I'm so proud of what the younger generation is doing. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, like I'm in some ways I'm jealous of them. And then in others, I'm like, I, with my anxious brain, like, I don't know (laughs) how you guys are doing it because you, you, you have like, you know, more accessibility of information and availability, but at the same time, like if, yeah, uh, lots of people have said it, but it's like, if I had been a teenager with social media, it would have gone pretty badly, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so Aparna, in the end, in line with this season's theme, any final words or love advice you would like to share with us? I think, I mean, I've been reading more about this in general, but I think when I grew up and even now, I think people, a lot of times you think about who you're attracted to or like who you see as a viable partner is pretty rigid or innate. And I think only now am I starting to be like, oh, I think this is as socialized as the rest of our beliefs and things. Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of times people are like, yeah, I'm very open-minded and tolerant of people from every background, but I'm just not attracted to blank. And I think Mm -hmm. the fact that we don't see attraction as something that is also as equally molded by these forces is worthy of unpacking more. I love that. I love that. That's so profound. Absolutely. And there's one more question I'm going to ask you. I We ask all our guests this question. Um, it's basically, I can say this is like the underlying theme of immigrantly. If you were to define the United States in a word or a sentence, how would you do that? I mean, I will go very brief and I guess people can read into it what they want to, but it might be a little on the nose lately, but I would say organized chaos. Hmm. I like that's that. That's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Thank you, Aparna, so much. Aparna, this was so real, good. Real treat. Oh no, thank you for having me. I've been listening to Aparna for a while, but in preparation for this interview was kind of going back through stuff and being like, oh my God, there's so many things I want to ask her about. I loved it. I loved it. And I could relate to so much of what she was saying. That was just incredible. What, what a great way to kick off the season. Absolutely. And are you ready for our next guest? I think I am. So see yeah. you next week. Bye-bye, everybody. Take care. Thank you.